Howdy folks, and welcome to the Six Ranch Podcast. On today's episode, we have Jim O'Leary and Ross Seavey from Switchback Outdoors. Switchback is a really cool YouTube channel that has hunted for deer, elk, turkey, bear, and more all over the West. These are really great guys, and Jim is one of my best friends. We talk guns, bullets, and how to start a YouTube channel. Recording from the depths of Hell's Canyon. Hello, hello. How's it going today? Jim O'Leary here. There we go. The Jim O'Leary. You have a great voice. It's almost <laughs> like a, like you're announcing somebody to come onto a <laughs> specific type of stage. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> today in our episode of The Worst Bear Hunter, <laughs> starring yours truly. But how are you the worst bear hunter? Well, you went bear hunting. You saw a bear. It was too far. Yeah. It was one day. That was one day pretty much my bear hunting career at this point so failed one day but (laughs) redemption is on the horizon okay ross yeah tell me about yourself let's see 32 years old like long walks down the snake river beach looking for bears no i'm born in idaho lived in idaho my whole life very folks from idaho yep little town called well they live in marcy now but i grew up in fruitland idaho just across the border from oregon yep and now live up in a little mountain town called McCall, and little piece of heaven up there. Yeah, it is a nice spot. Um, and there's a ski area there. Yeah, we got two ski areas: Tamarack Resort and Brundage. Okay, does that bring in a lot of business in the winter time? Yeah, winter time and summertime is crazy up there. It's a very touristy town. So, do you ever get a break? Uh, yeah, usually fall, and then about this time right now. Well, especially with well, everything going on in the world right now, but even this time of year when it's beautiful down in the valleys and up there, it's just kind of the worst time of the year. Everything's yeah. melting and muddy and just a mess. Yeah. So right now we're down in Hell's Canyon. We're bear hunting. We're fishing for bass and sturgeon and hanging out, um, doing a little hunt for six-hour electro-optics and six-hour rifles bringing the cross rifle out here and you guys are shooting at gunworks um 6.5 prc yep that's correct i'm not super familiar with the prc what's that thing all about jim so it's pretty much um they take the 6.5 then bump it up into a little bit more performance than the standard creed more and just speed yeah yeah and overall been very happy with it um last year we harvested four deer with it i believe on our icon tour and okay. pretty good results overall with it and then the range time that i've been able to have with it in the interim is it's been a good gun or a good cartridge yeah so how much faster is it than a 6.5 creedmoor this one is running a little short or a little slower than some of the ones you can get because you can get those up to about three thousand. but ours is at a 2803 right now um, just because we have a shorter 20 inch barrel on it and uh, built for a little lightweight gun but um, so 150 feet per second something like that mm-hmm. and uh yeah and then uh, the bullet that you're liking right now is a uh, eldm from yep hornady. the match from hornady and the 147 grain little thinner jacket than the eldx um, that a lot of people have been using still good performance on animals which is consideration i guess in when you're choosing your bullet is making sure that you do have something that is useful when hunting so right that just doesn't shoot good a lot of people get hung up on their ability to shoot paper at 600 yards or shoot a steel target at a thousand yards and like oh this thing drives tax we're not hunting tax 
that would be a weird hunt. Tax probably suck to eat. <laughs> like I don't know what the point of uh, of that is, but yeah, velocity certainly helps, and that is a, a bit of a shortfall in the six five Creedmoor. Um, I shot some Hornady American Gunner ammo. Have you come across that stuff? I have not. It's a it's like a bulk box of ammo, and it shoots really well, but it's definitely throttled back a little bit. I think they tried to save some money on gunpowder. <laughs> When I shot that out of my SIG DMR that has an 18-inch barrel, I was at like 2405. So, you know, I was I was dropping 10 feet between um, 600 and 700 yards, if, if I'm remembering that right. Yeah. You know, it's still hitting. Yeah. But not very hard. No. Not it's very really hard. It's really slowing down on the end there. So it's a lot. It's actually less energy at that range than a 9 mil at point blank. Um, so people tend to, to misunderstand capabilities based on accuracy. And I feel like a lot of hunters, and you guys are welcome to argue with me on this, I feel like a lot of hunters were sort of given a, a bad bill of sale on the importance of shot placement and that being the end of the day. Like just if you have good shot placement, then everything else will come into line. But if you have a really... You know, if you if you don't have enough kinetic energy and you have a bullet that doesn't perform well, you can have good shot placement and have a bad result. And yeah. you and I have seen that together, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we lost a bull together one time. So. And that was all due to a very poor performing bullet at a range that the speeds that we're going at were higher than anything it could perform at at that distance yeah. and yielded in just utter failure there. Yeah. But it... And as painful as that is, you know, that was a fantastically accurate rifle and at longer range it performed really, really well and, and would have on that elk. But the fact is the shot wasn't wasn't far enough for that bullet to function. No. So I I like to plan plan backwards on all this stuff. So with, with broadheads I think it's really critical that the broadhead is the most important part of your your archery system, right? That can't fail. The the entire rest of the system is about getting that broadhead inside of an animal same thing with a with a rifle with the scope with the cartridge all that is just about getting that projectile inside of an animal and making sure that it performs well it does and i would also like to add with that is like we talk about shot placement and how that's the optimal thing but also a better performing bullet if you do have a more marginal shot or a shot that's a little bit farther back will also make up some differences in the lack of shot placement in some aspects and help you be able to recover an animal that you might not have been able to recover at all at some times yeah totally and there's ground between a perfect hit and a clean miss and Mm -hmm. you can make up some of that ground with a with a heavier bullet that's going faster that's performing better better Ross, is is this 6.5 PRC a, a sweetheart cartridge for you? Are there any others that you like? You know, the year before we built the 28 Nozzle with Gunworks, and I think it's it's gonna it's, it would be the sweetheart cartridge. It's one that it's never let an animal get away. Everything we've shot at, we've killed, and it's just a very very proven killer. And so, but on the flip side, that the 6.5 PRC. With that 20-inch barrel, you know, we've got the Gunworks Climber Carbon Fiber Stock on. It's a super lightweight gun. So, like, we brought it on this trip because we knew we were going to be hiking into some nasty country. And, well, like, last time we ran into some guys, and they were like, well, where's your gun? And Jim had it strapped on his backpack, and they didn't even, you couldn't even see the rifle on his back. So, I mean, so it definitely has 
the pros and the cons, I mean, that 28 nozzle packs a punch and the 6.5 PRC, not quite as there, but those two rifles, I mean, you kind of have that, that 28 caliber, you know, and then, so it's, you kind of have the best of both worlds when you have two rifles like that. You can take one for when you're going lighter or smaller game animals and bring out the 28 nozzle or something bigger. Yeah. But yeah, that 28 nozzle, like I said, it's, it's just proven. Like, we what, take it. What bullet do you like out of that gun? We're shooting the 168, the burgers. Okay. And that's a burger VLD? Yeah, the hybrid. Okay. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that, you know, in this gun world, we have to go back and forth between millimeter and, uh, in inches and increasingly so right with with the 6.5 on the scene we end up talking about millimeters a lot more often but the 280 is just a seven millimeter yeah so there's a huge huge difference between a 6.5 and a 7 mm um that half millimeter makes a tremendous tremendous difference yeah so i'm i'm a bigger is, is better um Guy, you know, I think Elmer Keith said that the ideal elk cartridge was a camp stove going twenty six hundred feet per second, <laughs> and I'm 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 in that camp, man. Hit him hard, you know, hit him hard and 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 kill him as fast as he possibly can. But obviously, we can't carry a gun that will fire a camp stove yeah. uh, very far. But uh, yeah, Ross, you you own Switchback Outdoors, which is a YouTube channel primarily, yep. right? Yeah. And Jim, you've been on on the team of Switchback Outdoors for how long now? Uh, this would be our fourth year together, I believe. So, and in that time, you've done a bunch of hunts. You've done we've done uh, two different um, years worth of what we've been calling the Icon Tour, mm-hmm. and it's primarily been devoted to mule deer hunting across the West and going to multiple states every year and. Uh, just experiencing it different time frames different states and uh, just trying to show kind of the spectrum of mule deer hunting throughout the seasons early early spring all the way through you know the rut or after the rut and um yeah it's been a fun project that ross had got going and i've been lucky enough to ride along with it and had a great time on it but even beyond mule deer i mean you guys have done turkey hunts you've done bear hunts you've i mean it's a pretty expansive list yeah, I mean, anything that we can hunt, that we can go get some content for, we'll go do. We were talking about, on the way down to, was it Colorado last year? Yeah. We had one of the guys with us, one of my buddies, and he was talking about he did a week-long rock chuck hunt. <laughs> and so we started kind of giving some crap. I'm like, you know what, that would actually be kind of fun to go just shoot rock chucks. That would be a You hoot. know, just, just a couple day, well, we wouldn't do a week-long, but like a couple day trip, you go down there, you know, get the, like the BDX system down there and range and shoot, like, that would actually be pretty fun. But yeah, I mean, really anything, I mean, anything more western, we haven't ventured back east um jim's went and chased uh coos deer in arizona um i primarily stayed with mule deer is my main passion so mm-hmm. i tell people i'm not the best elk hunter but i like mule deer so that's what i make up for it do you like eating them yeah 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 we love mule deer i grew up eating mule deer and elk um but we didn't we mostly just like pounded it and floured and fried it that's how we grew up eating venison yeah i really like mule deer too um, I think it's kind of an, an interesting development in hunting that people kind of look down at the taste of them. But the muleys that, that I grew up eating were high mountain deer that spent their summers in the alpine and then came down in the fall um, when they were kind of pushed out by weather and predators and everything else. And, and that's where we were hunting them. And they got a little bite of, you know, frozen alfalfa at that point. But 
mostly they were eating alpine foods and yeah. any any animal that's living at high elevation their forage is is so scant um, and so nutrient dense because it has such a short growing period um, I think that animal just ends, ends up tasting fantastic yeah I could see that what's your favorite uh, wild game animal to eat you know it's kind of a weird one but like our family loves the antelope Mm-hmm. Like if you take care of antelope, right, it's kind of, the, it's even worse than venison. I feel like people say, you know, antelope's the worst thing to eat, but if you take care of it, right, we love antelope. Cut it really thin and just cook it really fast. And yeah, my kids like, they're like, oh, they were like, how come you don't want another antelope? I'm like, I can't get the tag ever, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, they love antelope, but they, I mean, antelope and elk. I mean, yeah. deers, I mean, like I said, it's pretty popular in my third. It's still really good. And we get more of that than we do elk. So, right. But Yeah. That's that's interesting. Um, when you say take care of it, you know, say somebody's going going to go on their first antelope hunt this year, or maybe they've had antelope before that didn't taste that good. Are you talking about how they take care of it in the field, or how they take care of it at home? Both. I've shot when I shot when I was thirteen years old. I shot the, my first antelope. We shot it, and we you know we just gutted it out and threw it in the back of the truck and drove home with it like that way. You know, two hour drive, and then we took it out and skinned it, that kind of thing, um, and it wasn't that good at all. And then. After that, we you know we just kind of experimented more. Um, the next one we shot, and like we cleaned it right there and put it in quarters and drove it on the back, and it was a little better. And then the last one I shot, we we went and we quartered it out, put it right on ice, took it home, and we cut it up that same day, and it was it was amazing. That's and so awesome. I think I think as soon as you can get it on ice, the better. Okay. And that's whenever we would go antelope hunt, that's we plan when we have a cooler just ready with ice. And as soon as, as soon as we get those quarters off and then bags, we put them on that ice until we can get it back home. Blocks, cubes. I like blocks. Yeah. Just less mass. Right. A lot of times I'll take like a gallon jugs, like the heavier duty, like a, like a ocean spray, those heavier duty ones. Mm-hmm. And I'll just freeze those yep. and put them in there. That way you're not getting any leakage or anything. Yeah. Do you have any tips for taking care of antelope in the field, Jim? No, I think that's the fast ones. Um, it's all about how you take care of them and it's as fast as you can do it and that's where just breaking them down and putting them on ice has been success and i honestly antelope is one of my favorite things too but living in oregon it's harder yeah. to draw a tag yeah. so you don't have the same opportunity but i've had very good meat come off of them and impressed a lot of people with a well taken care of critter and i think that speaks with any of them but definitely but- antelope I've been stacking my points in, uh, in Wyoming. I think I've got three antelope points now. So one of these years, I'll have to go throw my hat in the ring and bring a bunch of ice with me. Yeah. yeah. No, I think I'll go with you. <laughs> Sounds good. Except here's the problem with that is if you and me go antelope hunting, then I'm going to see a buck and be like, sweet, I'm going to shoot it. You're going to slap my <laughs> hand and be like, no. <laughs> no, I'm going to see another buck and be like, I want to shoot that one too. <laughs> No, I think I let anybody shoot anything they want. If they're happy with it, they can go for it. Yeah. But I definitely will try to persuade you out of it <laughs> at some point. So the, this has actually been a, a role that we've played for each other a few times um, since we've been friends, is uh, going on hunts to make sure that the other guy doesn't shoot something um, that he'll later regret, which neither of us have ever done. Not managed to pull the trigger yet. But, but. Uh, yeah, I think one of the first hunts we ever went on was... Uh, that big bull hunt that I had up in Chesnam. Yep. Yeah, that was one of the funnest things I'd ever gone on just because it was like the fourth quarter and I was like, hey, dude, you got an extra seat? You need any help? Like, just trying to figure out how I could weasel in on this. You're like, come on out. Yeah. I remember uh, you saying that there was no way you were going to lose track of how many bulls um, <laughs> we saw. 
and I think halfway through the second day, you were over a hundred branch bowls. Yeah, and uh, and then you threw threw on the towel. Threw on the towel at that point. I felt like we were counting some of the same ones. So it's possible. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say one way or another. But uh, man, that was a fantastic hunt. Ended up in a really cool elk. That bull was six and a half years old, and he did not taste good. We did get him get him cold right away and stuff. But these older bulls, you know, some of them j- just are a little bit tough to eat. They make a good hamburger. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Some of these, uh, some of these guys that all they kill are, are big bulls, um, and they've been at it for a long time. I kind of feel bad for them. I think that they've forgotten how good elk can be. Like back in the day when they shot cows and raghorns, and just had it all, and they're like, "This is the best thing ever." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I shot a cow this last year, and then I shot a, a small five point the year before. And my wife, who's you know basically a staunch trophy hunter at this point. <laughs> She wants me to continue to shoot small stuff because it tastes good, but she only wants to shoot big stuff. I'm like, how how did this dynamic occur in my life? Pretty funny. Well, Ross, a lot of people are interested in in having for themselves the type of success that you've had with Switchback Outdoors. I know when I talk to to young kids and ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they say they want to be YouTubers. And, you know, you... You are living that. You are. You have a YouTube channel that's that's successful and has sponsorship, and and you work really hard at partnering with those people and making sure that they receive good value in return. So, I mean, if somebody wants to start their own hunting YouTube channel, what advice do you have for them? How do they even get started? First, I think it's just doing it. Um, when I first started Switchback, it was early 2013. And uh, I just wanted to video my own hunts. And that was kind of the main deal. And I was like, oh, you know, but I've, if I want to get these and edit them, I want to share them with people. And so that's why, you know, at first we we're going to do the Vimeo route because it was just less, I don't know, YouTube just didn't seem like the great place to do it. So we were going to go with that. And then we jumped over to the YouTube side of things. And I'm glad we did because that's definitely like mean, Vimeo. You don't even see those videos anymore. Everything's YouTube. But it was just, it was a slow, it was a slow process. I didn't go into it expecting much. I, I still was doing my normal jobs doing everything else the same besides i just packed a video camera with me so what kind of camera does somebody need you know really it's crazy you don't need as big or as as you think um i started off with there's a canon fh s 200 i think i got it for less i think i got it for like 600 bucks off ebay and it was shooting 1080 and it had a decent zoom on it and i used that thing for two or three years and then just this last year, I upgraded to like uh, one of like the Sony mirrorless cameras, and I would definitely say it's it's been nice because like on this hunt or on any of the hunts last year, it's a, a mirrorless camera, so it takes amazing pictures and it takes great 4K video. But I have it on my tripod all the time, so I can snap pictures and get video with the same camera. Because before I had a DSLR in my backpack and my video camera, and the DSLR stayed in my backpack, so I didn't get, ever get any of that great pictures. I was always using my cell phone or different things, and then that's really bumped the game up i would say um audio is a really big thing that i'm pretty picky about and even with a shotgun mic with like the quiet cat on it like sometimes you have rough you you kind of want to if it's really windy you might want to tuck back into a corner or something like that where you're going to get a little better audio because i think that would kind of people when they're watching a video and watching that the output of the audio sometimes you're watching it and then it's you know that when they're talking it's super quiet and then they go into a music you know, scene or something like that, and it blurs your speakers out, and you, you're all, all you're always having to go and adjust the audio up and down and, and different things. So, um, 
man, I think the main thing is just going out and doing it and just trying it and, and just posting them. When I started, I tried to have like five videos already on YouTube before I ever even started putting it. Back then, it was just Facebook before I put it on Facebook because I, I didn't want people to just see one video and then three months later, oh, there's another video. I wanted them to have some content already there. So I think having content and trying to be regular with your content, we've been trying to do that this year. I actually, what today's Tuesday, so I actually missed out on, on this Tuesday. I had a today's video ready Tuesday to video. go. We actually did a back pack uh, wolf hunt in Idaho and I have it ready to go but I didn't hit upload on it so but trying to be regular with content is is huge I think if you can get people to say oh a switchback video is coming out today um, I think that's that's a big thing and diving into like the analytics and things is something I never really cared about much but then when we did the, the first icon tour we did a video a day for 16 days so we did a 16 you know, we hunted for 16 days and we did just boom 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 and then content went quiet for a couple months and i guess um youtube actually dings you on your analytics if you're not being regular and consistent with your content if they see that spike then they want to expect that same spike and then if you drop off it lowers you down on their analytics so we've been trying when we did this year's icon tour we uploaded videos every monday wednesday friday which was great because it gave us a day in between to promote that video prior and then it was better for just marketing the the project as a whole and then it spread our our whole project out another month and then then after that we've just been doing weekly content we've been doing the the tannerite tuesday videos every other tuesday and then the other the other tuesdays we've been trying to throw in a hunt from the the year prior that we hadn't released yet or something like that yeah. and man i don't know it's 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 all about getting the content i think it's it's crazy like i'll watch some of the videos or the youtube channels my kids watch and i'm just like how are they like it's some of the dumbest things out there but some of the things that they just have an, a niche at and they just they do it and my kids are there sitting watching it and they've got millions and millions of subscribers and i'm sitting here over like okay what can i do to get something like that but any i don't know you just can't get discouraged especially within the hunting youtube channel it's tough because it's it's kind of controversial you'll get people saying you know, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that. But um, it's, it's, it's a tough market, especially if you're in Western hunting. If you look at the, the hunting market in the United States, the Western hunters were a very, very, very small percentage of it. So I think you just got to do it and just don't get discouraged. And like I said, it's been it's 2020 now, so it's been, what, seven years? I'm not the greatest in math. <laughs> yeah, people, <laughs> people overestimate what they can get done in a year and they underestimate what they can get done in a decade. Oh yeah. By a lot. And it's just, and we've done it all organic. We haven't paid for, you know, that's the one thing I do like about YouTube is you can't pay for subscribers. Mm -hmm. There's no way you can just, you know, pay someone to get, I mean, I guess, I guess I don't know that maybe there is a way, but you it's, if you're not getting that organic growth, I feel like your followers aren't really there to watch what you're doing. And even then we were talking about it. Even Jim and I were talking about it yesterday afternoon when we were waiting for bears to come out. You're only getting like 30% of your subscribers are the ones actually watching your videos. Mm-hmm. Even looking at during the Icon Tour, our analytics. Guilty, by the way, I think. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Like people that are subscribed, they don't see it. Or in, but I think it was like one time I looked, it was 92% of the people watching our videos were not subscribed to our videos mm. or to our channel. And then vice versa, I think you have the people that are subscribed that aren't watching it. And so you're like, you try to com- somehow you, you try to convert those people to subscribe, which is great because if you are talking to companies you want to partner with, having that bigger subscriber base, but then you want to have loyal subscribers too, because if you have this big number, but only 
10% are watching, that really doesn't really do much for them either. But getting, trying to grow something, like, it's just like growing any brand. It's just, if you, want, if you want to get those consistent and loyal subscribers that will watch it, want to tell their friends about it. And it, it's tough. It's been really tough to do. It's been great having a good project like we did with the Icon Tour. That's when we definitely saw a lot more growth than we had years prior. Big time. I mean, it was having a specific project to promote towards helped us out yeah. way more. You know, I think one of the one of the most considered and difficult aspects of, of this professional hunting stuff is that you've got to work with brands to pull it off because it's expensive. So you need the gear, you need financial support to be able to pull off these hunts. And there's always criticism that comes with that. And people will say that you sold out if you accept money from a brand or that they can no longer trust your opinion or uh, even if even if you aren't paid or, you know, you just get a discount on something, they'll be like, well, he only runs that because he gets 30% off. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really tough thing. It's a tough thing to navigate. And you have to be honest with yourself and you have to be honest with your, with your audience because they can see right through it otherwise. You know, with me as a, as a guide and an outfitter, I don't get the luxury of using something I don't believe in because... I freaking live out here, yeah. <laughs> you know, if it, if it fails, the consequences for that can be, you know, really perilous for me or the people that I'm with. And it's the same thing for you guys. You go in the back country and in, in these places in Wyoming, Colorado and Oregon, if something goes wrong with your gear, you're in a really bad place Yeah. and no, no amount of money makes that worthwhile. So I, I think that people are like, man, who, what kind of camo should I wear? What kind of pack should I run? I wonder if this company will talk to me. I wonder if they'll follow me on Instagram. Like, don't. Don't do that. Just try and figure out what will work for the job that you're going to do and then go try it. And if it fails, you need to go to something else. You know, get the best that you can afford. Yeah. Um, and then work hard until you can afford the stuff that you need. And what, what do you guys think about that? I think it's 100% true is like every time we go out, we're trusting all of our equipment to be able to perform at the same level that we're trying to have out of it. And the effort that we put into going to these places would be so frustrating if I got there and everything that I brought just because it was something that was given to me or whatnot failed me at that. And I, it would take away from your, your overall experience of hunting or whatever you're doing any adventure out there and i feel that if you have questions on gear ask the right people um figure out what works for other people that you see that are successful that are removed from things um if your buddy has it ask him to borrow it see if it's something you can and then say yeah. afford be able to purchase those things yeah and i think what a lot of these companies that are when they're working with you is they don't want you just to say, Hey, you, that, Oh, that was, this is the greatest gear I've ever used. You know, they want you to critique it. They want you to use it and abuse it. And then, cause what they're really wanting to get from you is advice and what they could change or, and sometimes the littlest things that they could change, make all the world a difference. So yeah, I mean, being true to who you are and trying to use the gear that you believe in, you know, there's been times, I'll admit it, when we first, when I was first starting Switchback, there was times I'd use gear that I didn't believe in. But it was hard because it was kind of like, oh, I, you know, I made these agreements or I made these things. But that was just where I didn't maybe talk about as much on the videos or whatnot. But that's one thing we've we've always tried to really stay away from 
doing like that hard sell of telling people, you know, I couldn't have shot this deer without this, or, you know, I couldn't, we've always tried to stay away from that. And I think it, it's more people seeing what we're using and then we get the questions about it. Um, like I said, like I said, in the beginning, the, the companies want, want you to tell them what they can fix. Cause it's like a company's just like a person. They, they want to know what they can fix themselves to be better. And if you're not giving them that and you're just saying, Oh yeah, that was great. You know, I loved it. That was the best piece of gear you guys ever, ever had. And, and, and if it really wasn't, you're not really helping them out at all. And so, yeah, I think being true to yourself is, is definitely, it's, it's a kind of a thin line you have to try to play when you're trying to work with companies. Cause there are some companies that have something that's really amazing. And maybe one other thing they might not have, it's not as good or different things, but I think just being honest with people and I don't know, like I said, it's, it's a thin line. You have to kind of watch and balance and, and check things out because like I said, people see through it. And oh, yeah. I mean, they can tell when you're miserable or, or you know, different things like that or when something fails. And, but, I don't know, it's just it's crazy. I'll, I'll say that the most valuable thing that anyone has um, is their integrity. And you only get to sell it once. Yeah. So, if you're going to do it, get a good price. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, just, uh, you know, ride, shoot straight and speak the truth. Yeah. So speaking about audio earlier and the value of that, I know folks are listening to this and hearing the wind. It's the afternoon. We're in a river canyon and uh, we're watching leaves and, and dust blow upstream. So let's talk about thermals. I, I can talk about the wind forever. We've done whole podcasts on wind before. But on a spring bear hunt like this... Um, We've got an animal that smells incredibly well. A bear's sense of smell is is phenomenal. It's better than an elk's. And we're in the bottom of the canyon. We've got wind blowing up the canyon. So what the hell do we do? I think it all comes to just coming up with a good plan of attack and understanding when, how it moves throughout the day, whether it's uphill or downhill, and basing your hunt off of that too. You can be hunting down during the heat of the day looking at some lower country but in the morning as you're working up some of the draws coming off the river it's in your favor there but when you get to the bench you can wait for it to switch around and set up for success again and it's all especially in here it's all terrain driven for the most part with the river and it's somewhat predictable unless a storm is impacting it and i think you can base all your hunting moves around that yeah so you know it's what what time is it? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. We're starting to see shade in the north, but we've still got another four four and a half hours of sunlight. Wind's blowing upstream. What time do you expect the wind to turn around? Uh, it's in my mind when everything when the shade hits the canyon and everything switches and your diurnals come down is when you'll start feeling it. And obviously, six o'clock, six thirty, yeah, somewhere in there, you'll have a bit of waver for a while kind of flip-flop and then it'll hopefully be diurnal flow back down and uh ross you run baits a lot in idaho yeah so this the switching of the wind in the evening that's a really pivotal time for you isn't it oh it's huge at first when i first started doing baits i just looked for terrain and i didn't i didn't even think about the thermals at all and i had success at that but it was never a good bear and then once i finally went to a place now before i even set up a bait you know, I'll go there about the time when I think the bears, you know, an hour and a half before the sun goes down. The last two hours of light are definitely the best on the bait. And so now I'll go out there before and kind of and pick a spot. 
one of the ones I just set last year, I'm sitting directly underneath the bay on the downhill side. And it's one, it's like you always see those whitetail hunters, you know, they sit this stand at this time with this wind, you know, change, you know, direction and everything. And, and that's one bait that if it's not perfect, you just don't go into it because you're just going to waste your time sitting there because the bears won't come in. If you have that wind, that steady wind coming downhill, you'll usually have bears come in. But yeah, we did that last year when, when we had the, some of those spring storms coming through. We'd go sit just because we're like, well, we can go sit tonight and, like I said, we, we didn't have any bears come in. And then when we finally got that that first night when the wind was steady coming out, we had three different bears come in. So picking, yeah, the thermals are huge when you're sitting on the bait because they're coming in cautious. They know that there's there's food there, but just like anything, like they're they're trying to survive. And so they're even more cautious coming into a bait because they know there could be danger there. Kind of like an animal trying to go to a water hole over in Africa or something. They know there's danger there, so they're, they're kind of on edge. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's <clears throat> really important for people to consider how important an animal's life is by the wind. You know, they live and die by the wind. Here in camp, we've got one pine tree, and there's turkeys that fly into our camp every single night. They fly right overhead while we're out here having cocktails and, and eating and smoking and joking, and they land in this tree. There are other trees around. There are pine trees up on the hill, but they roost in this tree because... It's right next to the water, and thermals will rise all night, and that will move their scent away from any predators. So they can't; their location is not given away, and that's why a turkey wants to roost over water. Yeah. Can a turkey smell? Nope, but he lives and dies by the wind because yeah. the things that can eat him can smell. So you you just can't underestimate how important wind is to animals to these predator prey dynamics. Well, guys, I really appreciate your time. Um, this has been fun, and I'm looking forward to the rest of our hunt and fishing trips. And and uh, I'm planning on going over and taking my motorcycle over and uh, doing a little hunting with you in Idaho this year. Seeing if we awesome. can't can't find a bear nibbling on some bait. Yeah, I'll try to repay you, but I don't know if I can repay you for this trip. It's been it's been amazing just seeing the country and watching you run the river. And I mean, it's it's been like a once in a lifetime. It's been awesome. We really appreciate it. Well, the river's not going anywhere. You know, sooner take a bath with a gym than sell my jet boat. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know about the once in a lifetime part, but I'm really glad you guys are here. Well, no, thank it. you very much. Like I always look forward to all our adventures. And they're all good. Yeah, never had a letdown yet. So. All right, boys. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the show, and thank you for listening. Original music was written and performed by Justin Hay. This podcast was edited by Emily Brannigan, and we'll be publishing a new episode every week. Go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and feel free to send this show along to someone who you think would enjoy it. Lastly, I want to thank Ross and Jim for being on this episode. They're great guys, and you can follow along on more adventures of theirs on YouTube or Instagram. Just hunt for Switchback Outdoors. Talk to you next week.